Are you waiting for the uh, <clears throat> Lord to come back? How many of you want the Lord to come back, like right now? Before I preach. Wow, you get thrown under the bus with a question. I love it. We long for the Lord to come back, don't we? Sometimes we get tired and weary. Um, sometimes we just desire for the Lord to fix the things that aren't going well. We long for the rest that Scripture talks about, the shalom, the peace. We long for his return. It's intriguing to me that, that I feel that mixture of tension because I do have family members that don't know the Lord. And uh, part of me wants the Lord to come back and part of me is, uh, just pleads with him on behalf of people that are close to me. So even though we want the Lord to come back, we have responsibilities, don't we? We still have things we have to do. We still have to live out our faith within our family, our friends, our culture, our church. We're in the series on faith. Um, by the way, we have next week, faith and family. And then the final week is going to be a question and answer time. So if questions are coming up during this uh, time, write them down. Mark and I will get up here and, and we want to hear what questions you have. We want to hear your thoughts as we've talked about faith and what does it mean to live out our faith in our world. So we've talked about faith in education, faith on the job, faith in rationalism, faith in ministry. Today we're going to talk about faith in culture. So what does it mean to live out our faith within the context of our own culture? A culture has a lot to do with um, a people group. It has a lot to do with values, ways of relating, the way we talk to each other. Uh, by the way, that changes from nation to nation, the way we relate to each other. In our country, for instance, uh, we have a certain boundary that people don't cross unless you're invited into. We have that personal space. But in many of the third world countries I go to, they don't think anything at all about walking right up and talking to me. It's a very different way of relating. Different philosophies, different ways of explaining the world around us. Those all go into the definition of culture for a people group. One important question that will help us talk about how to live out our faith is to talk about values. What are the values that we have as a church, as Christians, that we struggle with, or maybe we should struggle with, but we don't? Um, that's one of the ways to get into that. What does it mean to live out our faith? There are many other ways, but I, this morning I want to talk to you about some of those values. Some of them may surprise you. I don't know. I'm not sure where all of you are. Before we look at those values, though, I want to take a snapshot from Acts 17. This is Paul is in Athens at uh, Mars Hill, where he's talking there. It's a very unique sermon of Paul. It's different than the rest of his for, on several ways. And uh, it just provides us a great example of how to move out into culture in ways that are attractive, that engage people without offending them, but at the same time getting them to begin to discuss things. Now, you may not be familiar with the story, but Athens in Greece is the home of uh, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, all the Greek philosophers. By this time in world history, they had declined as the center. The, uh, the Roman Empire had, the power had shifted. They were known mostly for their uh, philosophies. That's what they were known for. So when you think of philosophy in the ancient world, it goes to Athens. That's where they did lots of discussions. And if you walk down the forum, you would see these temples built as you would in many forums. If you've never been to a, 
uh, country from the, the ancient world. So they build all these temples, and Paul's walking down there, and he sees a temple to the unknown God. I have to, I have to think that he chuckled when he saw that, because he's, that became his prop. So we have a god to Zeus, we have all these gods, and all of a sudden here's one. Because we don't want to overlook the one god, do we? Just in case we missed it, what if he's the god that, or she's the god that's really angry with us? And so we want to make sure we cover our bases, if you will. So it's very common in Roman forums to have the, uh, um, an altar or a temple to the unknown god, and that's what Paul was doing. So we're going to jump into this in Acts 17. And just work our way through this quickly and look at what Paul does, because it's very unique. So Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace. So part of the time he's in the synagogues, synagogue where there were God-fearing people, and the rest of the time, he's in the marketplace. He was there day by day with those who happened to be there. So when Paul sees these devotions to idols, um, he's distressed. By the way, this is a common scene in many third world countries. If you walk down the streets with me, if you get the chance to go to Kathmandu, for instance, you will see idols every 30 to 50 feet. Uh, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. Somebody falls and they trip and and uh, they didn't break anything. They assume a god must have protected them, so they set up a little idol. Once an idol is set up, you can't move it. It takes a, an act from the city government to actually get it moved. It's there permanently. So roads are built around these little temples and things like that. They're everywhere. So Paul's walking down, and he sees that, and he's very distressed by that. <clears throat> so look what he does. Verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, you know what that means? kind of strange words to us, isn't it? A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Remember, he's out in the marketplace having these discussions. So some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. So let's pause just for a moment because I think you're going to find the Epicureans and the Stoics are our friends. In fact, I suspect we have a bunch right here in our group. If we were to invite an Epicurean to come forward into our world today, so somebody from Paul's time to come forward, he would find much, or he or she would find much in common with our culture. They would note how our television commercials promote desire for pleasure and avoidance of pain. That was part of their belief system. They would agree with the media encouraging us to buy the next version of the smartphone or the next car with the greater things on it. They would hardly support our preoccupation with skiing and snowboarding. Not to mention the other pleasures that we enjoy here, experiences. They would affirm the clear message that there is no higher good in life than sexual engagement with whomever one pleases. Now a central part of our culture. They would affirm that. Or getting high by whatever means possible. They'd have no problem with that. Because you see, for an Epicurean, life's goal is pleasure. They don't feel so far away from us, do they? We kind of relate. We dance along that line, don't we? A little bit sometimes. Well, the Stoic is on the other end of that spectrum. A Stoic 
It's one who opposed pleasure. They would be comfortable wearing a t-shirt, for instance, that says life is hard and then you die. That would be a stoic. They taught that the only good that people can do was to control their own moral choices. Happiness was, a found, in, was found in avoiding or rejecting desires for happiness and pleasure. All events are determined, but not by a God. They're all determined by fate. Boy, we dance on that line too, don't we? And when things happen to them, their common expression in modern day language was, well, that'd be good character development. Ooh, we kind of dance along both these lines, don't we? They would, we would probably feel comfortable around these people a little bit. And yet Paul recognized that their values were not appropriate given his belief in this one true living God. So look what he does in the second half of verse 18. He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So he's proclaiming the resurrection. That's what he's talking to them about. So Paul's very first initial defense to get their attention and to engage them was to talk about the good news. See that language? They said this because Paul preached the good news about Jesus. It is good news. I'm going to say it till I die. Don't be ashamed to tell people you're a Christian. Don't be afraid to tell people about Jesus. They don't even know who he is. Our culture is much like this culture today. It's not like it was when I grew up, and many of you with gray hair, where we had a lot of common beliefs. Not so at all. People today, they don't even know who he is. So he's telling them about the good news about Jesus. What is this good news? Well, let's keep going. Verse 19. <clears throat> then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they all mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. By the way, this is not a critical statement, I don't think. Don't read into it. This is often what we do in a university setting. There's a time and a place to talk about ideas. In fact, we should do it more. We should have places where we talk about ideas. We'll come back to that. Paul is accused of bringing new gods, if you will, to Athens. You see, in the Roman Empire, you could not introduce a god or a religion without the approval of the state. The state, it was a state-controlled religion. They controlled all the gods and they controlled all the religions. The reason why Christianity sprang up and wasn't stopped initially was because it was part of Judaism, which had the sanction of the Roman government. So the Roman government didn't distinguish between Judaism and Christianity. That wasn't until much later. So they're saying, you're introducing to us these new gods. These are strange ideas. That's what happens if we go out into our culture today. Go over to Pug, sit down and strike up a conversation with somebody about Jesus. It is a strange idea to them. It really is. You should try it. It's fun. It is. What is significant is that Paul got everyone's attention. You see, the, Areop the Areopagus, that's a code term for the council, the city council. And so when the word spread about what Paul was doing, they drug him before the council, uh, perhaps to kind of put him on a semi-trial basis, going, what are you doing? You can't walk in here and advocate these new gods. 
You just can't do that. We don't, we, those, your God is not sanctioned by the Roman government. So they're putting him on trial a little bit. So in his speech, which follows, he demonstrates a variety of techniques for surfacing his Christian values, which were at odds with their culture. Isn't that the very place we find ourselves? Where our values are often at odds with their culture? So let's take a look at them. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. So the very first thing he does is he identifies common ground. We're both very religious. He got their attention when he started talking about Jesus. And they're going, what are you talking about? He's got his audience. So now he says, we're both very religious, and I'm going to tell you about that God, the one that you don't know who it is. <clears throat> Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. You notice he calls him the Lord of heaven and earth. That's important in just a second. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. God is that far away. When you're talking to people, don't fall into the trap of evaluating how far away they are from the Lord. Because he's only that far away. He's that close. I am, I am absolutely committed to the belief. When I come across a non-believer, I know several things right off the bat. God loves them infinitely, more passionately than I do. He's been involved in their life a lot longer time than I have. And he has far more experience with their level of brokenness than I do. He knows what to do. He's that far away. And often, if you think about the friends that you're talking to and you're in a relationship with that aren't believers, if you, if you stop and reflect, you will, you will notice the Lord involved in their lives. They don't. You, you hear his whisper in their lives, but they don't hear it. You recognize his tapping them on the shoulder, but they're not yet there yet. They don't see it. He's that close. So he highlights this good news that God is pursuing all of us for the sake of the gospel. He's not exposing their sin. He's not talking about the, the empty philosophies. He's not talking about any of that. He reserves that language for once you're saved, for the churches. But here he's dealing with unbelievers. He's not, he's not confronting them. He's not fighting with them. He's doing the opposite. He's telling them about a God who loves them passionately. Isn't that good news? Isn't that the best news in the universe? That God loves us so deeply and passionately that he pursues us our entire lives. We often ask the question, what if a person doesn't, chance to hear about, doesn't have a chance to hear about the gospel? I think that's the wrong question. Asked in reverse. 
Paul says everyone, Romans 1, everyone is without excuse. We all have the information that we need. The bigger question is, what if a person rejects what they already have? So let's implore our friends, don't reject. Step into the conversation. What have you got to lose? You've got everything to gain. Well, then he goes on in verse 28, For in him we live and move and have our being. You'll notice that that phrase right there is in quotation marks, if you have a newer translation. Then he goes on, as some of our own poets have said, and here's another quotation, we are his offspring. So the third thing he does is he builds cultural bridges by borrowing from Greek authors that they would have recognized. We now know that. And he uses them to support his message. The first one comes from Epimenides, who's a philosopher from the Isle of Crete. The second one is Aratus, who's a Stoic from Sicily. So what do we learn about this? Number one, Paul's educated. His own town of Tarsus was a center for Stoic thought. So he was educated. He listened. He engaged. And he used, he, he built bridges to them with language that they understood. So then he targets the core of the gospel by identifying God's patience and love. Um, Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think about the divine being that is like gold, silver, or stone. Now, here he contrasts, here he contrasts the Lord of heaven and earth with divine being. So he's using their language is what he's doing. He's using language they understood because they referred to gods as divine beings. He said, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof. Pause. This is startling language. No gods gave proof. None. Our God has. He did this. He demonstrated his deep love by giving proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. So he gives us proof. So he speaks to them in language they understand. He does not refer back to Israel's scriptures, what we think of as the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. He doesn't quote a Bible verse. He's not doing that. He's in Athens. They're not familiar with the Bible. Probably wouldn't have cared if they were. And so he connects with the language they understand. He makes the gospel attractive. He doesn't fight with them. He finds every way he can to build bridges to lure them into the conversation, to deepen the conversation. And sure enough, they go on and many of them begin to uh, believe. What was significant here is that Paul was able to look at various cultural settings. We see this everywhere he went in Acts and identify where his values clashed with the culture in which he was in. And so what does he do? He, he, he goes after those cultural values and begins to lure them into a walk with the Lord. He doesn't fight with them. Very consistent. He does fight with the Jews a lot, but not with the other cultures around them. So what are the values that are present in our world today that we don't agree with or perhaps shouldn't agree with? Or what is our Athens today? What does that look like in some accounting? 
I'm going to run by in the next few minutes, several of them. Paul was shaped by Jewish ethnicity, religion, Roman citizenship, Greek culture and philosophy, as well as Christianity. That shaped who he was. Let's think for a moment about the things that shape us in Summit County. There's many more than I've listed, but I've just listed a few. Freedom? We have the right to freedom of speech, don't we? Skiing? Snowboarding? In fact, don't we sell experience here in Summit County? Isn't that our prime commodity? Is experience a good pleasure? Something that's good? But aren't we also experiencing a decaying moral climate? Everywhere we look, isn't that happening? A growing apathy? Well, I'm glad you believe that. You could believe whatever you want. A growing emphasis on rationalism as opposed to faith. Don't we see these around us? Laws are changing. We feel like we're losing our culture, in a sense. And what is the temptation? To become passive and to do nothing. So let's talk about one of them. Relativism, characterized by both New Age philosophy as well as postmodern philosophy. They both really highlight relativism. Let me begin by saying, regarding relativism, relativity, okay? Relativity is the way it's defined today is whatever you think is fine. That's up to you. We have serious and sophisticated and very good arguments for the personal presence and existence of God. We do. We do. So if you're struggling in your faith, let's talk. We do. The existence of a good, intelligent, powerful, and personal God makes better sense of the world than the naturalism of Eastern philosophy, which we're experiencing more and more around us. The worldview that we hold as theists makes better sense. The more you learn about the uh, Eastern philosophies, the more you realize it takes more faith to believe in them. It really does. We believe in the dignity of the human, for example. We're one of the very few religions that believe in that. We don't have to have reincarnation, becoming something different. We don't have to believe, we don't have to have emptying the mind so that we can reach nirvana. We're not a light source that's being emitted. No, we believe in the personal dignity of the human. We're unique. I'm me. I'm made in the image of God, and I like being me. Julie, I like you being you. I don't you want you to become a dog in the next life. <laughs> I like you for who you are. I could go around the room, Mike, I like you for who you are. That's unique. It's very unique. We believe in the personal presence of the one true living God, not an abstract concept. We're not a light source. I shared the gospel with a guy one day, and he goes, yeah, but I believe in New Age philosophy that uh, you know, we're all light sources that are emitted, a spark, if you will, and after millions of reincarnations, we all merge into one light source. And I just said, well, what happens to you? Well, what do you mean? Do you become like a spark? Well, I guess. And I said, wow. I'm glad I'm not in your religion. I get to be me for all of eternity. I like being you. And you get to become nothing. And he said, wow, I never thought of that. <laughs> it's amazing when you start asking questions of people and start digging a little deeper, you find that they don't really know what they believe. We believe in God's character. It's the source of goodness and morality. We believe in creativity and beauty that all originates with the Lord. 
In fact, the fundamental truths we hold true in our country have come because of Christian values. The morality that we enjoy, the dignity of the human, care of the earth, all those things are unique to Christianity. Christianity brought those to the world table. We are very different than every other religion. I can't state that enough. We are very different. We believe in absolute truth about God. Now listen, I'm going to bring relativity into this equation, so listen carefully. We believe in absolute truth about God who presents himself in relative and redemptive ways in culture. So we do believe in relativity. No, God is not Allah and not Buddha. We believe in the one true living God, but the way he, he, the way he relates changes from culture to culture, and we see that all throughout the Bible. In other words, God meets you where you are and brings you on a journey to him. Every one of you experienced that in your individual lives. Your stories are going to be different than mine. Our culture is different than uh, Indian culture, Nepalese culture, Mozambican culture, every other place. And God meets them where they are, just like he did with Abraham. He spoke to Abraham in the stars and then brought him to belief in him as the one true God. So relativity is part of our religion. Someday we'll have a discussion on where absolute truth and relativity, what that looks like. We believe in the absolute truth about God and everything there is to know about God who presents himself in relative ways, just like we do in relationship. So this idea that it's just your perspective, that's a form of relativism. The unwillingness to make truth claims leads to decay in moral conviction. What are you willing to die for? What was it going to take? I'm not saying you're passive, maybe you're not, but this is metaphorical or uh, allegorical. What's it going to take to, uh, to get you to quit being passive? What are you willing to stand up and say, enough is enough? I am willing to die for that. <clears throat> when we begin to introduce relativity and unwillingness to stake claims and create conviction, then we begin to lose our moral voice. That's what happened in Nazi Germany, communist Russia. We have lots of historical records. The people in those countries, it's not that they had strong convictions. They didn't have convictions. They lacked them. And therefore, when the Christian voice gets silenced, bad things happen. What does it look like to engage people in winsome and attractive ways? The gospel should be attractive. It really should be. So I'm having my rotator cuff worked on a couple years back because I had torn it up. And a physical therapist, she says, what do you do? And I said, I work at Denver Seminary. And she says, I don't believe any of that stuff. I said, you don't? She said, no. I said, have you ever read the Bible? She goes, why would I read the Bible? And I said, number one, it's the most read book in your history, United States. Number two is it laid the foundation for everything you believe to be true. Do you believe the dignity of the human? She said, yeah. And I said, that's a gift from Christianity. And she said, really? How do we present the gospel in winsome ways that lure people into the conversation rather than fight with them? That's what Paul's addressing. Okay, let's look at a second one. A second area where value is different. Biblical and theological illiteracy. This, I'm astounded at how quickly our country is losing the ability to think theologically. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, we think very differently than we do today. And uh, we have lost that ground. Our understanding of God and his ways is decreasing with each generation. 
Each generation, less and less. This current young generation, they're now called the missing generation. Why? Because they're not in church. They don't have a faith. We seem to be caught up in entertainment and technology, and what did we exchange or pay for that attraction? The cost was we gave up on virtue and deep thought. <clears throat> we did. When's the last time you read a serious book? We're guilty of reductionist thinking. We try to whittle the gospel down to sound bites because that's the world around us. And so because of that, um, I suspect many of you, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, I'm trying to raise an issue, a concern. Many of you don't know how to explain justification, sanctification, atonement, regeneration, the pillars that make this good news fantastic and differentiate us from every other religion. I know because I was in a classroom for many years and they couldn't pass the interest exams first day of class. Where did we lose that? So we come across as simple, irrational, uneducated, ridiculous because we can't even explain our own faith. Sometimes we'll it down to, well, because that's what the Bible says. And that may be good enough for some of you, but it is definitely not good enough for the world in which we live. It is simply not good enough. A theistic worldview makes better sense of the world around us. And if you understand what this Bible says about these incredible truths, your faith will deepen and grow and your ability to understand and relate and connect with people in winsome ways grows with it. How many of you work hard about thinking deeply about God and theology? Or is it too much work? Are you too busy? In our country, that's now been relegated to the academics and the pastors. You want to impact your culture? Start reading more serious books. Start thinking about it. Well, let's talk about emotivism. That's another area. This is a philosophy focused on feelings and emotions. It follows relativism. It's the next logical step to go where we shift from a culture of beliefs to a culture of feelings. You hear it in language such as, I feel this is wrong or right, or this makes me feel uncomfortable, or in the, you know, as a professor, students would write papers, and I feel this, and I write back, I don't care what you feel. You're not going to pass class with your feelings. What do you think? What do you think? Be transformed by the renewing of your emotions. No, wait a minute. Be transformed by the renewing of your what? Mind. Your mind. The problem is that feelings express personal preference and rarely allow for intelligent discussion. Some of the best counselors that I've come across are ones who get beyond the emotions. I mean, we have a stereotype about counselors, so how do you feel about that, right? We joke about it and laugh. That's a good place to start. But the best counselors are the ones that once the feelings are surfaced on the table, they take it to the next step and say, how did you get there? How did you get to that, that level of feeling, those emotions? And we got to be careful not to leave the discussion on the table with only emotions. What do you think about it? You see, emotions express uh, preferences, not conviction. And that's a danger that we see all around us in culture. How about religious pluralism? Oprah Winfrey openly stated that there are millions of ways to God. 
Naturalism and scientism. Stephen Hawking argues forcefully there is no God. How about animal rights? Here's another area. Tom Regan, an animal rights philosopher, just retired, tenured professor, North Carolina, argues that some animals have beliefs, desires, memories, and a sense of their own future and who must be treated as an end in themselves. How about abortion and euthanasia? Do we believe in sanctity of life? Last year, the parliament in Belgium passed a bill legalizing euthanasia for terminally ill children of any age. And the children get to make the decision. It passed by a vote of 86 to 44 with 12 abstentions. These are not games that we're playing. You get it? They're the first country in the world to legalize euthanasia for children. And the children get to make the call. The, the call. <clears throat> What's the direction we're heading in? My son-in-law, by the way, is Belgian. He's the one that told me I was out there recently to visit him and my daughter. And he was a little discouraged. And he told me, he said, my own country passed this law. A five-year-old child can choose to terminate their life and the parents cannot legally stop it. Is that where we want to end up? Where's our voice? I would suggest that there are three things to consider, and we'll close with this, when we look about how we engage culture with our faith. Number one, we need to understand our own values and priorities. So get past your own biblically and the biblical and theological illiteracy. Start engaging in conversation. Come to our classes. Go to some other church's classes. I don't care where you go. Start reading books. Get, let's get past our own, our own shortcomings and understand what our true values are. Number two, we need to be willing to engage our own culture in attractive and winsome ways so that we can guide people to better thinking and the truth about Jesus. They need to know it. And finally, we need to learn how to better engage our culture and bring about change. Let's not sit passively by and let the world deteriorate. This is our home, isn't it? Shouldn't we have a voice as a church, as Christians, on morality? The moment Christianity loses its voice, then we've opened the door. By the way, the answer is not in quoting the Bible. That's not what Paul did. It's in understanding truth, which comes from the Bible, and being able, to, being able to articulate that and engage people in conversations in ways that they relate to it. That's what it means to be a, a church that wants to impact our culture. That's what I want to do in Summit County, is impact this culture for Christ. That's our responsibility. Go and make disciples. Doesn't say Christians, it says disciples, learners. Go and make learners of all the nations. Let's pray. Father, thank you for <clears throat> thank you for giving us examples all throughout Scripture of in fact it doesn't matter when we are in the history of the world, um, people are dealing with the same sorts of questions, same tendencies, Lord. Thank you for raising up people that have courage and can educate and Articulate, help us, Lord, as a church to continue to grow in our own personal convictions and our convictions as a church so that we can speak to this culture around us. Lord, only 7% of these people identify as 
Protestant Christians. Lord, that saddens me. Give us a voice, Lord, and give us the courage to speak well. In your son's name we pray, amen.